morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Happy New Year. My name is Steve. I'm the campus pastor here, and uh, I hope you're staying healthy and uh, happy this new year. I know that uh, we have quite a few people in our church right now that are ill, uh, not feeling well. I just want to encourage you. We love having you here. We think it's so important. In fact, we think being part of church community is one of the most important things that we do. And so when you're able to be here, we love that you're here. But I do want to encourage you, if you're not feeling well, um, over the next few weeks, stay home. And uh, we have a great online service that goes at 1030. You can get it on our website, genesischurch.me. But for those of you who are here, we're so glad that you're here. We know that some of you have been sick over the last few weeks. Our staff is feeling it right now. Some of our volunteers are feeling it. And a year and a half ago, or about 20 months ago or so, when this whole thing started, uh, we were praying every week for the Lord to get rid of COVID. And we've kind of gotten away from that as a church family, as a, as, a, as a staff, as a team. And so I just want to take a moment right here um, to pray. And, uh, you know, the, the Lord is a good healer. Uh, he is our comforter. He is uh, our provider. And um, one of the ways that we can just really be an encouragement to one another is to pray for one another. And I know that some of you have been sick, that you've had COVID and you're over it, and some of you, uh, but some of us have had family members that have really suffered. And so let's just take a moment right here in the service. Would you pray with me? Bow your head. Uh, Father, we know that um, at any time when you're ready, you could break the back of COVID. And so we're asking for that again, Lord. We just ask that you would uh, intervene in our church, in our city, in our state, in our world, that you would break the back of this disease. Uh, Father, for those who are sick right now, even those who are in hospitals, I pray that you would heal them. For people in our room right now that are not feeling great or have family members that have stayed home today, Lord, I pray that you would heal them and keep our eyes focused on you as our healer and our provider. And uh, when that happens, when this disease goes away and we're able to resume some sort of life as normal, we will give you all the praise and all the glory that you deserve for that, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for indulging me on that, Genesis Church. Hey, uh, do me a favor. Raise your hand if you believe that 2022 can be a better year than 2021. Raise your hand. All right, good. Almost everybody in the room, some of you are like, it can't be any worse, so we're going to go for it, right? Uh, I think this is a great time of year. The beginning of the year is a time filled with possibilities and new hopes and new dreams, new desires, and I think deep down inside all of us that there is a hope that um, those new things can be better than the old things. And I believe personally, because of how I'm wired, I believe that God puts that there, that God puts that desire within us uh, to believe that things can be better for our lives. And that's why at this time of year, so many of us do some personal reflection, like, right? We reflect back on the last year, think about what we accomplished, on what went well, on what maybe could have gone better, what went wrong. Uh, you know, just a bit of personal reflection. And uh, most experts will tell you that's a good thing to do on a regular basis, whether it's once a year or more frequently than that. But they'll also say that personal reflection, especially looking back on things that didn't go well, that that's really best if you couple it with some change, right? You look back on what didn't go well, and then you decide to make a change in your life. And I think that's why many of us set New Year's resolutions. At the beginning of the year, we look back on what went wrong last year, and we go, well, I wish... You know, my clothes fit a little better. I wish I had a little more money in my savings account. And so we make those decisions. And of course, the running joke is that New Year's resolutions never stick. But let me ask you this. How many of you at some point in your life have made a, a new goal or a new resolution that stuck and it made a difference in your life? Raise your hand. 
A few. So good. I believe that can happen. I believe that we can do that. I believe that we can set a goal, that we can have a New Year's resolution, and it will stick. And I think the reason that most New Year's resolutions don't stick isn't that they're too difficult. It's not that we set the goal too high. It's not that we uh, have too difficult a goal to reach. You know, a lot of experts in goal setting will tell you they have to be achievable goals. I believe in that. But I think the reason that most of us fail in our resolutions isn't that we set the goal too difficult. It's that we set goals that aren't very meaningful. And here's what I mean by that. We, uh, we go on that diet and we reach our goal weight and we realize that we're still the same person, that our life hasn't really changed that much or we read more books, or we save more money, and we realize it hasn't really made that difference in our lives. And the tragedy for so many of us in this culture is that we are pursuing the good life, whatever that means for us. We want nice things. We want comfort. Uh, we want fun. And there's nothing wrong with those things as long as like, God has our whole heart. But it's really bad, really sad, I think, that many people are settling for the good life when I believe that God has something indescribably better for us. And so while you may have already set a fitness goal or a professional development goal or a financial goal for the year, let me ask you, what are you doing this year? What spiritual goals have you set for yourself? What are you doing this year to strengthen your relationship with God? If he's got something better for you, indescribably better than what you've set for yourself, don't you think you should be growing closer to him so you can find out what that is? So last year as a church, we did a series, a year-long series. Our theme was called Planted. Uh, the idea came from Psalm 1, where the psalmist, the writer of Psalm 1, says that the person who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night, that that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. So the idea for us as a church last year was to have our whole church reading through big chunks of Scripture every day, that we would get planted in the Word, that everything that we would do would prosper, that our leaves would not wither, so when the storms, the winds come with life, that we would be able to withstand those because we're planted in God's Word. And we did that, or, or some of us did. I realize not everybody did. But there was some great fruit that came from planted. You may not know this. But uh, whether or not you were able to stick with the reading plan throughout the year or whether or not you, maybe you came late or maybe you're, this is the first year hearing about it, I want you to know there were some really exciting things that happened in our church through Planted in the last year. Let me just read a couple of them to you. Um, my friend Liz said that reading through the Bible helped her to refocus back on God. She was drifting, and the reading plan helped her to get back on course. And she said she's more disciplined now about carving out time to spend with God. That's really cool. That's a difference in somebody's life. Uh, Zoe, Zoe is a high school senior, and she was unsure about reading through the Bible. But the more she did it, the more she said she looked forward to her daily reading. And through her reading, she realized that while life may be hard now, we have the promise of life after death through Christ. And then I got a message just this morning from my friend Terry. My friend Terry's been a Christian for a long time. And she says this, uh, she said, it was really cool having others to share, discuss, read with, and research with, that going through the whole Bible with sermons, discussions, and videos along the way really helped me understand much more than if I just read it on my own. I learned so much. So that's exciting that the Lord is doing things through planted in our church. Well, if 2021 was a year to get planted in scripture, we believe 2022 will be a time to grow. And so that's our theme for 2022, it's grow. Now, what is grow? 
Well, while Planted had us reading large swaths of scripture every day so that we could get through the entire Bible in one day, I just want to let you know that for 2022, we are slowing down. And I just heard some of you take a big, deep breath and a sigh of relief that we are slowing down. In fact, uh, we're going to slow down and really digest the word of God really study it. In fact, we're going to spend most of this year, about 36 weeks over 2022, on one book of the Bible, the book of John. Now, this means that we're going to be able to bite off little chunks of scripture. We'll be able to chew on it, really get to know it well. We'll study a piece here on Sunday, and then you'll have the week with some self-study questions and to cover it in your, in your small groups. There's a, a reading plan available at the Info Hub. You can grab that on your way out if you didn't get one. Uh, it's, it looks like this. Um, there's a journal that we've got. This is our gift to you, so you can grab one of those so that you can write down your observations both as you're reading and then here on Sunday. You can use that in your small groups. And so we want to provide that to you just as our gift to you for being here and to help you grow in 2022. So what are our goals for this study? What do we want to accomplish through this in 2022? Well, two reasons really why we want to do this. Uh, Number one is to grow in your relationship with God. You, me, we want to personally grow in our relationship with God. And two, we want to grow together as a church family. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to study through the first part of John through about the end of May. We'll get to maybe John 12 through the end of May. Then we're going to take a break for the summer. And then starting back up in August, we'll start with John 13. And we should finish up right around Thanksgiving time, uh, just in time for our Christmas day. So that's what we're going to do. So why John? Well, we really want to get to know the life of Jesus. We want to study the life of Jesus. Uh, we, want to get to, we believe that if we get to know Jesus a little better, that our lives will start to look more like him, that we'll start to grow closer to God that way. We'll start to grow closer together as a church family. But there are four Gospels, right? There are four stories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So why have we landed on spending so much time in the book of John? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Well, first, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in their approach, in their content, and in their context. Uh, Together, they're known as the synoptic gospels. And that word synoptic is a Greek word, and it basically means common perspective. It literally means see together, synoptic. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that a lot of the content of these three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are the same. But while the content is similar... The, uh, even those three are different. They were written by three different men for three different purposes and three different audiences. Let me give you some examples. If you want to, this is going to be a really high-level overview of the Gospels. If you want to write this down, you can, or otherwise you can research this later on your own. I'll start with Mark. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. Some people believe that it was the first one that was written. Uh, Mark seems to be, have, written, have been written from Peter's point of view, which makes sense because Mark Uh, who we later know in the New Testament as John Mark, was a traveling companion of Peter's and was a partner with him later in his ministry. Uh, It's also the shortest gospel and seems to have presented some source material for the book of Matthew. Now, Matthew, you may know, was a tax collector, which means that uh, while he had a unique perspective uh, from a a view of Jesus' life, while he was a Jewish man, he would not have been readily accepted into the community of Jews because of his job. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government, and their job was to extract taxes from the people in their area. And in this case, in Jerusalem, it was mostly Jewish people. So his job was to extract taxes from the Jews. And the way the tax collectors got paid was that whatever they could 
extract from the Jewish people, they had to give a certain part of that to the government and the rest was theirs to keep. And that's how they earned their living. So tax collectors were often viewed as thieves. They, they were stealing money from the Jewish people. So Matthew would not have been a very popular man among the Jews until Jesus invited him into his fold. And so Matthew has this unique perspective as somebody who was a bit of an outcast in society, um, but then was accepted into this rabbi, this teacher's uh, um, group. And so uh, Matthew is written to a largely Jewish audience, likely within 20 to 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So probably 50 to 60 AD, uh, very early writing. Now, Luke, you may know, was a man of science, probably a doctor. Uh, Many of the clues in Luke's writing tell us that he was likely not a Jew. He was maybe a Gentile. And uh, Luke was a studied man, and so he presents the story in a largely chronological order. Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. Many people believe that this was written uh, by Luke when Paul was in prison later in his ministry. There was about a two- or two-and-a-half-year period where Paul wasn't able to travel because he was in prison, and that may be where Luke was written. But John is different. Because while the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, focus on Jesus' message of the coming kingdom of God, the Gospel of John focuses much more on the relational aspects of Jesus' ministry and who he was. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are largely about what he did. John is mostly about who he was. And while the Synoptic Gospels are mostly event-based, John is largely relationally based. John, the Apostle John, was one of Jesus' first two followers. He had been a follower of John the Baptist uh, down around the time where G- when Jesus was baptized on the Jordan River down around Jericho. And uh, John was there with John the Baptist when Jesus came out of the wilderness after his 40 days of being tempted by Satan. Jesus comes out of the wilderness. He walks out. John the Baptist points to him, points to Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't follow me. Go follow that guy. And John listens to him and goes to follow Jesus right then. So John is one of Jesus' first two followers. Now, he was probably Jesus' youngest follower. In fact, he was likely a teenager when he started following Jesus. Jesus was running a student ministry. It was a youth group. John was probably a teenager when he started, but he also lived to be the oldest of all the disciples, probably into his 80s. And in fact, this uh, letter, this uh, gospel of John was probably written very late in John's life, maybe when he's in his 80s or later uh, in Ephesus, probably after being released from prison in Patmos, which is where he wrote Revelation. We talked about that last week. And so John is writing late in his life with the benefit of a lot of hindsight, right? A lot of reflection. He can look back on his life and think about who Jesus was and what he meant to his life and his ministry and uh, the difference that Jesus was able to make in it. Now, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke share about 90% of the same content, about 90% of what's found in the book of John is only found in the book of John. So there are some very famous stories that you know about, things like uh, Nicodemus, Jesus coming to Nicodemus in John 3, when Jesus tells him that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That, That story about Nicodemus is only in John. The story about a Samaritan woman at a well where Jesus encounters her and has a conversation with her and she starts following him, that's only in the book of John. So there's a lot of unique stories. In fact, one commentator calls John the maverick gospel. Um, so stories like that. Now, the author of the book of John is never actually named. 
But church history identifies the beloved disciple with John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, uh, the brother of James. And that makes good sense since uh, gospel associates John and Peter as two of Jesus' closest disciples and as a close friend and confidant of Jesus. In fact, John was one of the first two. Uh, He was one of the only ones there at the transfiguration on the top of the mount where Jesus, uh, the, the spirit of God falls on Jesus. His face is transformed and he's there with Elijah and Moses. Well, Peter, James, and John are the only three that are there with Jesus. And John was the only one to witness personally the crucifixion of Jesus. And so he's got this unique perspective that really no one else can match. Also, while the synoptic gospels tend to be chronological, John doesn't really lose the chronology but it's less of a priority for him. He's very much more focused on the relationships. But it is from John that we really are able to decipher how long Jesus's ministry was, that it was three and a half or three and three quarters years on, uh, after from his baptism to his death. And we know that because while Matthew, Mark, and Luke only really mention the Passover before Jesus's death, right before Jesus's death, John uh, has three Passovers that we see in his book and the Feast of Booze and the Festival of Ded- Dedication. So like I said, John was probably in his 80s when he wrote this gospel, probably 85 to 90 AD, maybe even a little bit later than that. Jerusalem had fallen to Rome about 70 AD, so Christians were scattered all over the globe when this was written. And John is writing to confront some challenges. Remember, the church has started. The churches are popping up in these areas where Christians are going, and false teachers were starting to arise in the church. Some people were teaching that Jesus wasn't really God. They were doubting his deity. And then other teachers were were teaching that he wasn't really human, that he wasn't fully human. And John had walked with Jesus, and he saw the humanity of Jesus. He saw him get tired. He saw him get sad. He saw him get hungry. But he had also heard Jesus claiming to be God, and he had seen him uh, dead or alive after he saw him dead. And so John knew that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. So he's writing this gospel to really confront that in the church. And uh, While Matthew and Luke both start with the human genealogy of Jesus, starting with Adam, John doesn't do that. John starts out with his eternal origin. Look at what he says uh, in John 1.1. He starts this way. He says, In the beginning was the Word. Notice that the Word is capitalized. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As we read through this uh, first part of John, we'll see that John refers to Jesus as the Word, capital W, Word of God. This is the jumping off point for John's story of Jesus's life. It's the beginning. In fact, um, I just want to take a couple of moments and a couple minutes and show you kind of how the book of John is laid out. Many scholars will divide the book of John into four parts. There's the prologue, the book of signs, the book of glory, and the epilogue. And we'll talk through each one of those. So if you want to take some notes, you can do that. Um, We'll start off with part one, the prologue. This is John 1, 1 through 18 is the prologue. John starts with this powerful statement that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, that Jesus was there in the beginning, and that he was with God, and that he was God. Right away, he wants you to know that Jesus is separate from God the Father, but they are one being that highlights the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Now, you can think of a prologue like a curtain on a stage. If you go to see a play, you know, the curtain pulls back to let you see the setting of this play. Or if you're not really a play person, maybe you're more of a movie person. 
Think about it like the opening scene of a movie. There are some iconic opening scenes to movies that really set the stage for that movie. If you're a fan of Star Wars, any Star Wars fans in the room? The very first Star Wars, the really good one, you know, and the one that's now called Chapter 4, A New Hope, that starts with that iconic text rolling across the screen to let you know that this story takes place a long time ago, where? In a galaxy far, far away, right? You know that because you've seen that. That iconic opening really sets the stage. Or if you're more of a war movie buff, maybe you think about the opening scene of a movie like Glory or Saving Private Ryan that really shows like the devastation and the violence that war causes. If you prefer superheroes, maybe you think about a great opening scene in a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy 2, where the Guardians are fighting their enemy right there while baby Groot is dancing to Mr. Blue Sky by ELO, right? That's a great opening scene to a movie. Or if Hallmark Christmas movies are more your speed. Maybe you know the opening scene is always the main character in her corner executive suite getting the phone call from her angry boyfriend or fiance about why do you have to go back to your hometown with only three days till Christmas because he knows she's gonna meet the cute handyman that she grew up with that they haven't reconnected in a while and she's gonna fall in love and he's done, right? And so that opening scene sets the stage. That's what John is doing here. Like those opening scenes of movies set the stage. John is trying to set the stage. He's less concerned about the chronological flow of the story, and more interested in really drawing the reader in and letting him know uh, that this story is going to have an impact on them. So he starts with this amazing opening. Again, here it is, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God's Word. Now, in Greek thought, the Word is the one who brings unity and order to the universe. But in in Jewish thought, in Judaism, uh, the word represents the power, the dynamic power of God. Think about it. If you go back to Genesis 1, we see that God speaks the universe into existence, that with a word, the universe is created. And so the idea that Jesus is God's word means that he is God's agent of salvation, that he is his self-revelation to the people. So in the beginning was the word, and Jesus says, uh, John says Jesus was with God, and he was God. He was distinct from the Father, but he was fully God. He goes on in the prologue to say that to call Jesus the creator of all things. In John 1, 3, it says nothing was created apart from him that has been created. Uh, in John 1, 14, it says that Jesus made his dwelling among us, or in the message paraphrase, I love this, Eugene Peterson writes that Jesus moved into the neighborhood, I love this idea that God became flesh and he moved in with us. He moved in next door to us. He became our neighbors. It's called the incarnation. Uh, And he came here, why? Well, he came here to bring us back into a right right relationship with God, That, that we had strayed away from God, but God wasn't content to leave us lost. And so he sent his son as a man to find us. Why? To give people the right, John says, to be called children of God. And God's mission is our mission too as a church. If you haven't been here before, you may not know our mission at Genesis is helping people find their way back to God. And our church exists to spread this message. What does that mean? Well, it means that we believe that every person, everyone you know, everyone you've ever come in contact contact with was created to be in a relationship with God. But we collectively as a, as a human race, but also separately, we all decided at some point to go our own way, that we strayed away from God's ways. We chose our ways over God's ways. But God, who loved us, who is rich in mercy, was not content to let us stray away from him. He wanted to bring us back into relationship. And so what did he do? He sent his one and only son, Jesus, as a man to come to earth 
to live a perfect life as an example to us, to die a horrible death on the cross, a death that we deserve for our sin, an atoning death that paid for our sin, and that three days later, God raised him from the dead to show that he can overcome anything that happens in our life, including death, And then eventually he ascended back to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding on our behalf. Every time you pray, Jesus is sitting right next to his Father. He is praying along with you. He is praying for you and he is leading his church. That's what the Bible says is Jesus's job. And then right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his followers the ministry of reconciliation. He gave his followers the ministry of helping people find their way back to God. Uh, You read this in Matthew 28 and in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus met with his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. He said, hey, you're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so he gives us this ministry of reconciliation. And John tries to capture that in John 1. And then he finally, he ends his prologue with this, John 1, 18. He says this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Jesus, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And so the reason that Jesus came was to make God known to us. So that's the first part, the prologue. The second part is often called the book of signs. The book of signs. This is John 1, 19, second half of John 1, all the way up through John 12, 50, the end of John 12. Now, following the prologue, the first half of this gospel is called the book of signs. Why is it called the book of signs? Well, because there are seven signs or miracles that Jesus performs. Uh, And the miracles are called signs because they don't just demonstrate Jesus' power, but they point to who Jesus is in order to provoke faith in him. So they're signs that there is something greater going on behind the scenes than just what Jesus is doing here. And the signs are often linked to some way, to, in some way to Jesus' teaching. And so we see, for instance, he uh, feeds 5,000 men and their families uh, from a small lunch. And then he teaches that he is the bread of life, that he is the true manna from heaven. So here are the seven signs. If you want to write these down or take a picture, there are seven of them we see in the book of John. He turns water into wine. Now this illustrates purpose. This is a celebration. Uh, In the Old Testament, it says that, uh, that God's salvation is described as a great party or a great banquet, a banquet of aged wine and the best food. And what we see in this Miracle is that Jesus brings the best wine to the party. That represents God's salvation. So this is the very first miracle we see him perform in Scripture. Second, he heals a royal official's son. This is uh, something we'll read about in, uh, in, in a few weeks, and we see that it's a long-distance healing, that Jesus often will put his hands on people to heal him. But in this case, he didn't even have to go there. He was able to heal him from a distance. He heals a disabled man uh, to show he can uh, work with our, our, our physical Dysfunctions to we can, he can Jesus can do things in our physical life, our physical needs, because this is often what we pray for, isn't it? A lot of times when, when we're asked to pray, hey, pray for me because I'm struggling with this, and it's almost always something something physical or emotional. He's able to heal a disabled man. He feeds five thousand people who have sat through his sermon all day. He uh, some of you would wish I would do that. He he walks on water and scares uh, the bejesus out of his disciples. Can you say that bejesus when Jesus is the one? I don't know if that's theologically correct or not. Um, He heals a man born blind. And then finally, the seventh miracle we see um, is a great miracle of foreshadowing when he raises Lazarus back from the dead. And this really raises the ire of the Jewish teachers and is uh, what starts him on the path of 
towards crucifixion because he uh, raises Lazarus from the dead, but it's foreshadowing because he's previewing what is going to happen to Jesus after he is crucified. And in fact, Jesus teaches after that, I am the resurrection and the life. So there's seven signs that we see in the book of John. And then there are seven also, seven I am sayings that are in the book of John. Uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I, and this is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Boy, that, that's, this is a controversial statement, number six. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. And he says, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, man, I can't wait to get to that. And then finally, uh, near the end of his life, he tells his disciples, I am the true vine. Now, that phrase, I am, is really important. It would have been really important uh, to the Jewish people who were following him at the time because it harkens back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, you may remember the Israelites are being held captive by the Egyptians, and God calls on a man named Moses, and he says, Moses, you are going to be my chosen instrument. You're going to be the one who goes to Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, and you're going to tell him to set my people free. And, Mo- and Moses is like, who, well, who am I? Like, who, who am I supposed to tell, tell him sent me? And God says, tell him I am. And so whenever a Jewish person heard that phrase, I am, that's what they would have thought about. They would have thought about God claiming that in Exodus 3, saying, I am. And so when Jesus says, I am, he is claiming to be equal with God. And he did this seven times in the book of John. So if anybody ever tells you, well, Jesus really never claimed to be God, you can say, yes, he did. He did seven times in the book of John, and I can show you where they are. Here they are, seven times. In fact, so like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons don't believe necessarily in the deity of Jesus. And so you can, you can point to it and say, hey, seven times he claimed to be God. So those are the two parts we'll study before summer. We'll get through about John chapter 12. And then coming into the fall, we'll start back up again with part three. Part three is often called the book of glory. The book of glory. This is John 13 through 20. And it really only covers a few weeks of Jesus's life. Uh, 13 through 20 cover the last days in Jerusalem, including the last supper, washing the disciples' feet, his prediction of his betrayal. And then uh, we get to see Jesus's farewell address to his followers Um, his promise of the Holy Spirit, Uh, some important prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is waiting to be arrested, he prays for his disciples. He prays for his followers. He prays for us. And by the way, the fact that this prayer is captured really kind of points to the fact that this is the Apostle John that wrote this because there likely would have only been two or three people in the garden to hear that prayer with Jesus. Um, And then finally, the trial, crucifixion, and resurrection are all part of the book of glory. So why is it called the book of glory? Well, because these events, his trial, death, and resurrection, and exaltation are repeatedly referred to as the glorification of Christ, or Jesus' glorification. They are what brings him glory. The, The events captured in this part of the book also bring glory to God the Father. So it's his glorification. They also point to Jesus being restored to his place of glory he had before the incarnation. In other words, Jesus, if Jesus was at the beginning, he, he was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And if nothing has been created apart from him, and, and as John says in John 1.3, that means Jesus was there at the beginning. He was there all the way up until he came to earth where he was deglorified, right? He he gave up 
willingly gave up his glory so that he could come and live as a human being for 33, 34 years of his life. And then he was restored to glory when he went back to heaven. But finally, the other reason this is called the book of glory is because the events that happen in this part of John are what give us glory. They, they are what forgive us of our sin. They, they return us. They give glorification to us and salvation to us. And so we'll talk about the book of glory. And then finally, we'll get to part four. Part four is the epilogue, and it's in John chapter 21. Now, this was probably written later after the rest of the book. In fact, may have even been added after the death of John, but that doesn't make it any less important. The epilogue contains another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, um, another miracle in a huge catch of fish that happens, uh, the restoration of Peter to apostleship. You may know that Peter denied knowing Jesus three times at his trial, but in the epilogue, Peter is restored to being an apostle. And then uh, finally, the identification of the author of this book as the disciple Jesus loved. Now, I think that, I hope that's helpful to really understand uh, a little bit about the book. I think you need to understand how it's broken up. So hopefully that's helpful to you. We'll talk a lot more about that in the weeks to come so you don't have to absorb all that now. But I think another thing that's helpful to understand uh, a book or a story is why it was written. What is the motivation? What was the author thinking when he wrote this? What did he really want to accomplish through his writing that? And the good thing about John is that John tells us in his writing why he's writing this book. And I'll tell you that in a moment. But before I do, I want to tell you a story. Because as some of you know this part of the story because I told a little bit of it three or four weeks ago. But when my wife Benita and I got married almost 30 years ago now, neither one of us were followers of Jesus. We had a good life. We had a good marriage. But we weren't following Christ. And uh, we had some neighbors that kind of knew that about us. And so one one day we were working out in our yard and our neighbor came over and he started, he engaged Benita in a conversation. He said, what, eventually, I think, intentionally turned the corner to ask her, what do you believe about God? And she said, well, I, I believe in God. I think God's real. She said, but I don't know about Jesus. I just don't know about this Jesus guy. And so my neighbor just kind of took that, said, okay, all right, that's interesting. And he came back a day or two later and he said, hey, uh, my wife and I are going to start a Bible study in our home. Would you like to come and study the book of John with us? And Benita said, okay, sure, I'll do that. And so he said, great, you're the only one. <laughs> but she still came. And she went and they read through the book of John together over a period of months. And they got to this part where Jesus is standing in front of the Jewish leaders. And... Um, Pilate is asking what he should do with Jesus. And there's a crowd of people saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And my wife said, I realized in that moment that if I were there that day, I would have been in that crowd yelling, crucify him. And she said, I realized at that moment, I needed to make a decision of what I was going to do with Jesus. See, that's the thing about the book of John is it's going to call you to a decision. There's going to be a time when you're going to realize I can't sit on the fence anymore. Jesus is either who he said he was or he was lying. And I've got to decide what I believe about that. And my wife realized in that moment, I would rather be on the other side of the crowd. And so she started following Jesus. And she started going to church with my neighbors. And then I would sleep in on Sundays and she would go to church. And then I realized, hey, I'm, I'm missing something. She's got something that I'm missing. And so I told her one Sunday, I said, hey, I don't want you to go to church with them anymore. Let's, let's, let's find a church we can go to together. And we did. We spent about a year searching for a church, and then we found one. And, we, and about a year later, I sat in this church, 
And I asked Jesus to come into my heart and be my Savior and to be my Lord. And a couple of years later, some friends of mine were starting this little church plant called Genesis. And they asked me if I would come with them. And there was about 12 people as part of this church. And we're like, yeah, okay, we could do that. And we started coming to Genesis. And I started growing in my faith. And I became a, a volunteer in our student ministry. And I became an elder uh, on our elder team. And then um, a few years later, I got asked to come on staff as a pastor at Genesis. I'm here because someone took the time to study the book of John with my wife. Now, why did John write the book of John? Look at this. John chapter 20. He says this. So Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But look at verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Friends, our hope in reading through the book of John this year and studying through the book of John is, is not just that you would grow closer to God. We hope that'll happen. We think that'll happen naturally. That you'll get a better understanding of Jesus. We think that'll happen too as you study through it. It's not just that we would you would fall in love with Jesus more. We hope you'll do that. We think you will. It's not just that we would grow closer together as a church. We think that's going to happen as a natural result of this. But as you study through the book of John and you learn more and more about Jesus and you see how he was intentional at making disciples and how he intentionally invested in his life in a few, that you would take seriously the ministry of reconciliation that has been entrusted to you and that you would go tell somebody that needs to know and that through what is written that they would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and through believing that they would have eternal life in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. God, I am so thankful for that story, my story. I'm thankful for Rick and Diane, our neighbors, that uh, really just took a chance to come over and ask somebody what they thought about God and um, were intentional about leading Benita through the story of John. I'm thankful for the Apostle John who wrote this down so that we could believe and through believing we might have life. Lord, that story has, I know, so many, uh, so much fruit that has happened as a result of the book of John. And Lord, I pray for our study over the next year that as we study through the book of John, that we would come to know you, that we would come to fall in love with Jesus more, that we would know your name better. But Lord, that we would see people around us that desperately need to hear this message the gospel message, the good news that Jesus came to save us and put us back in a right relationship with Jesus. And through that, that people would come to eternal life in Jesus' name. God, I believe it can happen. I know it can happen. I've seen it happen. It's happened in my life. I want it to happen in our life and in our church. And so Lord, as, as we pray, as we kind of turn the corner here and take communion, I just pray in Jesus' name that your spirit would be on this place and that you would... Uh, that we would feel that, that we would know that, that we would know that you are with us, as Jesus promised, that you will be with us wherever we go and know that uh, these words that were written thousands of years ago were written for us, for this time, for this day and this age. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we are gonna take communion together. And so if you've got your elements, you might pull those out there. As we do that, I wanna read from you, read to you, uh, I think from the book of Matthew. Matthew 26 does a good job of capturing kind of what happened in this. And just so you know, if you're, if you're not part of Genesis, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can take communion with us. You're welcome. You don't have to be part of any church tradition or you don't have to be a 
necessarily a part of Genesis Church to do that. But we believe what Jesus promised and that he's coming back. And that while he's been here, he died, he was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. The Bible tells us that one day he's coming back. He's coming back to make all things right, to make all things new, to rescue his, his followers. And uh, until that day, we remember his death through the taking of communion. So if you've got that cup, you might pull that out now. In Matthew 26, 26, it says that while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Let's take that uh, top layer off there. You can grab that bread, and we'll take that and eat that together. Can't get mine out. Then he says, uh, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we take that, let's remember what Jesus did for us on the cross by taking our sin away. Let's take that together. Jesus, we're thankful for your work of mercy and grace on the cross and that it saved us and was able to put us into a right relationship with God. Uh, We remember this through the taking of communion until you come back, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. We know that only through you, Jesus, can we have that relationship with God. We We pray in Jesus' name, amen.